When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. And by stamps.com, buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com reimagine to learn more. I'm Ezra Klein, host of the new Vox podcast, The Weeds. Every week, I'm joined by Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias for a podcast for people who follow politics because they care about and love policy. We talk about healthcare, about economics, about the future of work. We get very nerdy. We get very into the weeds in a way you won't hear anywhere else. So subscribe to The Weeds now wherever you get your podcasts or at iTunes.com slash Panoply and join us for a discussion about what's really important in politics. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 13th, 2015, the I Don't Like Philosophy or Welding edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. There's an absence today. An absence uh, in the room. That absence is John Dickerson, who is preparing to moderate a Democratic debate in Des Moines on Saturday night. And he is he's so deep in it. He said he he just texted me to say he's in a room with 10 people, uh, which I guess he means like they're doing a lot of stuff in a room with 10 people. I didn't really understand why that mattered. But in his place, we have I won't say it's better than John. Different and awesome. Equal. Uh, Equally awesome. Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie. Hello, Jamel. Hello, hello. Jamel is in West Virginia, but he too will be in Des Moines at the debate. On this week's GabFest, another week, another debate, a different debate. Did Marco Rubio win himself the GOP nomination this week? Then the campus protests at University of Missouri and Yale. What do they reveal, teach us about racism on campus? about modern protest movements, about free speech. Then the Obama administration appeals its immigration executive action to the Supreme Court. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, is it okay 
for the French to disinvite the Iranians to a state dinner because the Iranians insist it be alcohol-free. We will discuss. I hope I, I, I'm looking forward to a nice, vigorous debate about that. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Two reminders. One reminder about Monday. If you're going to be in New York on Monday night, we have our Super Fest with the Hang Up and Listen crew and the Culture Gab Fest. It's going to be a town hall. There are still some tickets available at slate.com slash superfestnyc. We don't have John to make the sound, but so it goes. And it's going to be a great show, and we're going to have guests from Hamilton. Two of the stars of Hamilton, David Diggs and Leslie Odom Jr., are going to— Who are so amazing, can I just say, having gotten to watch that show yesterday, which was like the best thing that's happened to me in a long time. They are amazing. Yeah, they're going to be there. We're going to talk to them about that. about Hamilton. I'm incredibly excited for that and for all the other. There's so many gimmicks that are going to be in the show. There's so much fun stuff that's going to happen. It's apparently podcast family feud, I heard. Anyway, uh, get your tickets at slate.com slash superfestnyc. And we are still collecting conundrums for our conundrum show. You can hashtag at HeyGabFest on Twitter, or you can email us at gabfest at slate.com or post to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. The fourth or possibly the 53rd debate of the Republican presidential campaign was held on Tuesday night in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There was no Scott Walker on stage. I bet when there was no Chris Christie, there was no Mike Huckabee. Well, but I mean, Scott Walker, I think probably when he was thinking about his presidential campaign was thinking this is going to be the high (laughs) point. Here I am in Milwaukee, Milwaukee, hometown. I'm going to just crush this debate. But no, not to be the top eight candidates were there. Allegedly, they were debating about the economy and business, although I would say that was a that was loosely enforced. There were a lot of other subjects. Jamel, who won that debate and why? I would say that debate was a three-way tie between Rand Paul, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz. Rand Paul, because unlike the previous three debates, he actually had a presence. And he didn't just have a presence. He really uh, got Rubio especially into arguments about conservatism, about spending, um, and I think really raised legitimate issues with Rubio's um, approach and candidacy. Rubio, because he was able to get out of those exchanges um, unscathed and and winning them, uh, I think the most memorable moment was Rubio responding to an exchange about spending and specifically his child tax credit by kind of baiting Paul into an argument about foreign policy, which... I wouldn't call Paul an isolationist, but he's certainly far less apt to use military force than pretty much everyone else in the party. And that puts him really on the left of most Republicans. Rubio escaped that exchange by basically highlighting one of Paul's weaknesses. But still, I think Paul did well. Rubio did well. Um, Although I'll I'll add as a a parenthetical that it's very clear to me, at least, that Rubio is very rehearsed and very on message. And once you've watched four of these now, it becomes that becomes even more obvious. And I doubt viewers notice this because no one is watching, you know, all of these. But I do kind of wonder what will happen when Rubio has to be a bit quicker on his feet and can't essentially rely on his stump speech in every circumstance. When would when when will that happen though? When is that moment that he's going to have to do that? I don't know. I think it may occur if he ends up being in a one-on-one or you know three-way, four-way race with another candidate. And so in that case, Ted Cruz, who I think had a great debate, 
was able to clearly distinguish himself from his opponents, had smooth, if, you know, often nonsensical answers on the economy. I think there's one point at which he said the gold standard was a friend of the working man, which would have come as a big surprise <laughs> to William William Jennings Bryan. So <laughs> if you ignore the, I mean, if you just ignore policy content, right, just set that aside. That That's like, that's, I would say the entire Republican campaign is like, if you just ignore the content, they're all doing well. The Emily, this is Jamel sort of backhandedly, but he raises an interesting or something I hadn't really noticed, which is that when this presidential campaign started, there was this plethora of uh, executives in the race, people with executive experience. And we have seen the governors and former governors, Bush, Huckabee, Christie, Jindal, Kasich, Wash. Kasich is still in there. No, they're still in there, but they basically have washed oh, out. But, so that we have, we've had the senators have risen in the case of Rubio and Cruz. I mean, Paul's not. And Paul. Well, Paul hasn't risen, really risen. Paul's, if he had a good night, but he hasn't really risen. But you have right. the, the senators and you have Carson. And then Trump is his own weird thing we'll set aside. But it seems very likely that we're going to have a senator and a relatively junior senator as the GOP nominee after having all these executives in the race. What does that what does that tell us? I wonder if we're going to have a senator as the presidential candidate and a governor as the vice president. And in that sense, the party would end up perhaps with the best of both or at least a blend. But in the meantime, I hadn't thought about what Jamel just pointed out, which is that as this race narrows and if Rubio and Cruz continue to rise, Cruz could be Rubio's biggest nightmare because... He's a good debater, and he's going to call Rubio on, you know, whatever his weaknesses are, presumably. And Cruz is incredibly smooth. So even if he's not making a whole lot of sense in terms of policy, he will sound very polished. And then I guess my question is, would Cruz really rip into Rubio or would in the end, would he pull back for kind of the good of the party? (laughs) My hunch is that Cruz will, will not pull back. He he seems to very much want to win this thing, and if I think he ends up in a situation where it's him and Rubio, he, he will keep the gloves on. I'll also add that I think Cruz is especially dangerous for Rubio because he kind of offers a similar value proposition, right? Cruz says, listen, I am also the son of Cuban immigrants. <laughs> the difference is that I'm not a squish like Rubio is. And given that, you know, in in Cruz's narrative, given that we've nominated two squishes over the past two cycles, uh, John McCain and Mitt Romney, and given that even George W. Bush wasn't immune to squishitude, um, do you really want to take a chance with Rubio? You can get everything you like about Rubio uh, without without the stuff you don't like. Do you guys do you guys think that this is really a two person race or or are Carson and Trump? Or, and possibly Jeb Bush or possibly Kasich, are they actually viable uh, nominees? I mean, I think that you can't call it a two-way race because obviously Trump and Carson have too much support and Bush is still floating around there. And, you know, Kasich is in the mix, too, in some more theoretical way. So I feel like I'm kind of impatiently pushing toward a moment where it seems like the party and the voters get more serious after a few contests. I'm in this place right now where, you know, I want to believe that Trump and Carson will drop off, but there's sort of no indication that it's happening. And there's even... Right. We're ready for them to leave, but they're not ready. (laughs) Right. And there's, you know, there's indication that Trump is beginning to 
build more traditional campaign infrastructure. Carson still appears to be running sort of like a, a raise and burn operation. Most of the money he raises goes towards raising more money. But it's entirely possible that he stays in through Iowa and New Hampshire and does pretty well. I don't know when either of these candidates leave, and I'm unwill I'm increasingly unwilling to say that there's no chance of them staying in or even doing all right. I mean, this is this is the year, right, of traditional political parties being overturned or upset, uh, not just in the United States but worldwide by um, populist anger. One of the weirdest moments in the, this debate for me, it was sort of a listless debate, but one of the weirdest moments was uh, Gerard Baker, the editor of the Wall Street Journal, asked Carly Fiorina a question pointing out that under Democratic presidents in the last two decades, job growth has been much, much stronger than under Republican presidents and asked her, you know, how, do, how will you deal with that or how will you grapple with it? And she literally pretended, she literally assumed the opposite. She talked about how the Democrats were killing jobs. It was, it was a complete unwillingness to engage with the premise of the question or accept the premise of the question. Do you guys think that the, that the Republican fantasia around policy, which you see in Marco Rubio's tax plan, you see it in everyone's tax plan. Rubio's is the maybe the most egregious. You see it in Fiorina's non-answer to this question. Do you think that they're ever going to have to face that before the general election campaign? I don't think so. I mean, Carly Fiorina is just the queen of not facing up to reality and making stuff up. And it doesn't seem like she's paying for it. I mean, she's not rising in the polls, but I don't think that she realistically would be doing that anyway. And so it feels like the lesson of these debates is that you get a free pass for making things up and for your policy proposals coming unglued on you. Doesn't really seem to matter a whole lot. Do you think it matters in the general yeah, I do. I mean, I want to think that, right? Because in the general election, you're having to appeal to a wider electorate and there's just more scrutiny and more people paying attention in a serious way. What do you think? I think it will matter in the general, not necessarily because of more scrutiny or, or because people take it more seriously, but because conditions will be different. I mean, it's one thing to be running against other Republicans and then you can sort of, you know, boilerplate say, well, the Obama economy is horrible, blah, blah, blah. But come next, you know, August, next September, if current projections are on point, then the economy will be at around, you know, 5% unemployment, 4.9% unemployment. Um, wage growth is modest, but it's there. Um, I think the year-over-year wage growth uh, as of this past month was 2.5%. And so they'll be, we'll be entering a general election season where Republican rhetoric notwithstanding, the economy is doing all right. It's not. It's not bad by any means. It's not supercharged, but it's it's pretty good, and people are doing better. And when you add in the con, the very real contrast, any either Hillary Clinton or in the unlikely event that it happens, Bernie Sanders can very easily say, under Barack Obama, our economy got back into shape after George W. Bush tore up an economy that Bill Clinton had made strong. Then it becomes a real problem. Then Republicans will have to have an answer for how can we actually trust you to keep this thing going. Before we end on the debate, let's let's pause elegiacally around Jeb Bush again. I like to do that every week. 
<laughs> this was the week he was supposed to come out swinging at Marco Rubio. It was all about he's about, about to open a can of whoop-ass on Marco Rubio. Certainly didn't do that in the debate. He tried to go after Trump around immigration in the debate. And certainly didn't score any knockout. Every week, I think, oh, this is surely it. This is the, finally he's just gonna he's just gonna retire to Florida and be done with this. And he's still there. Jamel, is there anything that happened this week that made you think, oh, he he could recover? I still don't think he's going to recover because I still don't und- I still can't quite see why Bush why why pick Bush over the alternatives, the guy with the troublesome last name who is an especially an especially good politician, but I think Bush has shown that he's not completely factless. I think he will be able to you know survive into this next round of contests not the least because the guy just has so much money behind him i mean this if trump and carson drop out if it is just cruz and rubio i think bush still has a chance to be being around just because he has so much money and that actually becomes like if i'm an establishment republican that is a nightmare because then you have two establishment republicans splitting the vote and one of them isn't just going to fall away because they can't raise any more money. Yeah. Not completely feckless. That is an excellent selling point. Not I complete... think you should put that That's the Bush on his Bush, Bush exclamation point, not completely not feckless. Not completely feckless. Um is it is the emphasis on not or completely? Not. I mean, I think I think I think not. I think it's more of a not completely feckless. Not Surely, not Jamel, they're not about to hire you. Completely feckless. As soon as someone hears this, I'm sure Bush's family will be reaching out to you. Awesome. All right. Let's hear from our first uh, sponsor this week, which is Harry's. Harry's is the official partner of the Movember Foundation. It's going to be donating money and helping raise awareness this month for men's health. So Movember, as I think many of you know, is a month where men grow mustaches to raise awareness and money for men's health issues. I've never been exactly sure what somebody like me who already has a mustache is supposed to do. But whatever you do around Movember, you should check out Harry's, which is the official razor partner of Movember. I've realized that I have a Harry's ritual, which is that I, because I have a beard, I shave very little. But when I come home from New York, because I spend half the week in New York on Wednesday night, one of the first things I do is take a shower and grab my Harry's razor and Harry's uh, shave cream and shave off the kind of growth around my beard. It's, It's a really satisfying ritual. I'm very glad to do it because the Harry's razor I have is great. It delivers a superior shave for an incredible price. They have bought a razor factory in Germany that has been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for almost a century. And Harry sells those blades and its razor handles and its shave cream and shave gel at factory direct prices that only cost a fraction of the big brands. So you could, should get started with Harry's. Over a million guys have switched to Harry's. And we have a great deal with our code GABFEST. You can get a starter set, which includes a razor handle, three blade cartridges, and your choice of shaving cream or foaming shave gel delivered to your door. And shipping is free for just $10. So if you go to harrys.com right now, you can get $5 off that first order with our code GABFEST. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter GABFEST. The president of the University of Missouri and the chancellor of the University of Missouri's Columbia campus stepped down this week after an extraordinary series of protests at the Columbia campus. African-American students demanded the resignation of the president. There were an amazing set of protests, including a hunger strike by a graduate student 
and then a strike by the University of Missouri football players, which seems to have been the 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 final precipitating incident that caused everyone to lose confidence in the president for him to step down. What are sort of the precipitating incidents that led to Missouri's campus becoming a site of protests from minority students? It's worth breaking this up into two sets of, of incidents. The first, and I think the reasons why there was a general lack of confidence in Wright's tenure as president was first an effort to reduce health insurance services for grad students, which was strongly opposed, obviously, by grad students, but other faculty and the cause of a set of protests. This was followed up by a push to remove Planned Parenthood from the University of Missouri, which also met protests. During all of this, there were a series of racial incidents. In one instance, the student body president was called uh, the N-word by a group of men in a pickup truck. In another instance, uh, our resident advisors and police found a swastika written in feces on a dorm room wall. And then there were several other incidents of, of black students um, being called racial slurs. And student activists did not feel that the president took this seriously enough. And together, they prompt kind of a broader movement. And from there, you have the hunger strike from the from the one student. And then you have the football players um, deciding that they were going to not play football until the administration removed the president and kind of showed its commitment to doing something about these racial issues. All right, let's, because we're going to talk about Yale too, so let's turn to Yale where the issues are somewhat different. And I would say the sophistication of the protest is much lower at Yale than at Missouri. There was a racial incident at a party at a, a, fraternity, a Yale fraternity where, according to some students, the people working the door at the fraternity turned away black women who were trying to come to the party saying it was a it was for white was it white girls only was that the line that was that was the line right yep whites only and then there was a an exchange of emails about halloween costumes you describe emily do you want to describe this it's so complicated it has so much arcane yale i know yale bureaucracy (laughs) in it that it it... i honestly don't really want to describe it but i guess i will try the culture, a cultural center at Yale sent out an email about Halloween saying, hey, sometimes students aren't as sensitive as they could be about this holiday. Here are some kinds of costumes you might want to think twice about wearing, like an Indian feather headdress and blackface. Didn't say you would get in trouble or that you couldn't wear the costumes, just suggested that maybe it wasn't a good idea. Email slightly heavy handed in tone, I would say. In response to that email, an associate master named Erica Christakis wrote an email basically objecting to the first email as being an act of censorship. And she, in objecting to the students being told what kind of costumes they should wear, was also telling the students what they should be doing. That's one of the many kind of weird parts of this story. And she made the minority students who had appreciated the first email feel demeaned and belittled. And I should pause here for my little bit of Yale um, arcana because it actually really does matter. So what does it mean to be an associate master? Yale has these 12 residential colleges. They're like glorified dorms, but in Yale's view, they're super glorified. They're like the little community you join when you come to Yale that makes your experience successful. 
I will bracket this to say it did not work for me at all when I was an Yale undergraduate. But many people really do feel a sense of allegiance and home to their residential college. You stay in it the whole four years. The master is a faculty member, but in his or her role as master, he or she is supposed to be essentially like the camp director and like mom or dad. And students are encouraged by Yale to see their masters in this like homey, um, social way. So the master of this college is Nicholas Christakis, who is Erica Christakis's husband. And after Erica's email went out, the students, a lot of minority students, expressed upset, not because they can't handle intellectual debate, but because they felt like it was a misuse of the master's role to be undermining them. And rather than kind of absorb that reaction from the students and change their tactics, the Christakises have really doubled down. And I think the result has been to turn this into a kind of pitched battle between the supposed forces of defending free speech versus a real groundswell feeling at Yale that it's a hard place to be a Black or Hispanic student, that there is the university hasn't entirely figured out how to make Black and Hispanic students feel like they completely belong. And there are lots of reasons for that. One telling reason is that the percentage of Black and Hispanic faculty at Yale is stuck where it was in the 1970s. Jamel, is there a unifying narrative about the experience of minority students at, at predominantly white campuses. What, what's the explanation for why now and why why it has exploded so quickly? So I think there are a few things. Um, some of them don't really have anything to do with the campuses themselves, right? You have uh, social media, you have social networking, you have the you know Black Lives Matter movement that really got its start on social media. Um, you have a lot of minority students who's, um, and this was certainly the case at, at Missouri, who've, whose formative, one of their formative political experiences was witnessing the Ferguson uh, events and the rise of Black Lives Matter. And so you just have, you have all these things that are basically like acting as radicalizing forces on students and also things that accelerate the rate at which students receive and disseminate views and information. And I think anytime you have through that confluence of factors, um, you're just going to have more activity. I think there's this fantasy that young people are, are super tolerant and have no problem whatsoever with racism. But I think the fact is that you know the vast majority of white students and especially white students at selective universities are growing up in fairly segregated environments. Maybe they consume black popular culture or you know popular culture that is strongly influenced by African Americans, but in their everyday lives, they don't really know very many black people. And and for some, that just leads to a certain cluelessness. Um, for others, it it does produce this sort of like uh, I, I don't know the right word for racial entitlement. Um, I think it's a real thing. It's really something I experienced at UVA. It's something um, friends of mine experienced at UVA. I, I'm willing to bet that if you took a survey of black students at predominantly white institutions, you would find uh, similar descriptions of experiences with sort of feelings of racial hostility. And above and beyond just racial hostility, it's just there is just the fact that when you're the only ones in the room, consistently and regularly, 
it can feel very isolating. And when faculty and administration don't take that seriously, it can feel as if you do not belong. That is a really crappy way to go through school. Um, and so all of these things together, I think, are producing sort of real uh, unhappiness and, and unrest. And then when you have some explicit incident, whether it's someone being called a racial slur, whether it's an insensitive, ma- they're called masters at Yale. They are. An insensitive <laughs> the master. Ma- the master of Calhoun <laughs> College. We've, we've been thinking about whether that's a good idea or not this year, but yes, so, they yeah, are. That's, now that I well, said at, that. At Harvard, they're called loud, the master that's... of the house, though. That's even worse. But we, I don't think there are, any slave, the there are any slave holders who are, houses are named after, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah, that's another thing going on here, is whether to rename one of the colleges that is still named for John C. Calhoun. Right, so I mean, I think, that's, I think that's a perfect example of the kind of feeling of ins- insensitivity, right? That you have, it, it's like not, it's not just that um, Yale doesn't have very many black students. It's not just that they're often the only people around. It's not just that there isn't very many black or Latino faculty. It's not just that there are plenty of situations, whether people talk about them or whether talk about them openly or just talk about them amongst themselves, where you're facing like racial hostility, whether it's kids in blackface costumes or this is a, a whites only party. Or just, you know, things like, well, you wouldn't be here if not for affirmative action, which is a thing that was said to me a bunch in college. Then to add insult to injury, there's like a building on your school named after the intellectual force behind the Confederacy. (laughs) It gets to just be a bit too much. And I think it's hard for me to see how people don't see how that can be get to be too much it to walk around a place that's supposed to be welcoming and in critical ways being profoundly unwelcoming so the missouri protests i think were brilliant you know there was a huge amount of real bravery on part and of the, the protesters the football players are the, so awesome <laughs> well the football no the football players are kind of awesome the guy who went on a hunger strike is really awesome that's a okay, guy who, okay. who put it out there and and that was that to me was the the really brilliant move but the, but people were were willing to take significant risks with their own careers, with their own lives to achieve something. What I didn't get at all, and I, maybe one of you has an explanation for this, is, you know, take the take the president's scalp, big deal. Like, so what? What What is that? You know, what, what, how is that? What does that do? You know, you'll, you'll be able to tell your grandchildren, that's the time I took down the president of the University of Missouri. But like, what? So what? I think you're dismissing it too quickly. I mean, I want to hear what Jamal's thoughts are, but now I've jumped in. I'll talk for a sec. Look, if you can take down a president who has been ignoring you and acting as if all of this roiling doesn't matter, then presumably the next leader who comes in is going to change that. And that means something. Jamal, what do you think? I mean, I think so as far as like the utility of removing the president, it's noteworthy that this happened so quickly and I, I i don't think it's just the football players i think there was probably real unhappiness among the administration writ large with his tenure and so this there's sort of a confluence of factors that brought him down and and now you know any new any new leadership will make trying to create a more welcome racial environment a priority and i, I don't think that's 
to be understated. I'll also say that I think even if nothing comes immediately from removing the president, I think it it is a really important demonstration of the power of student-athletes, and specifically football players, and specifically African-American football players, who um, on many of these large state institutions are probably the most valuable laborers there. They are responsible for the schools getting millions of dollars in revenue from games, uh, for the surrounding communities getting millions of dollars in revenue from you know hotel rooms and restaurants and everything. And that gives them a tremendous amount of leverage. And I think everyone has already sort of known that this leverage exists, but this is the first time we've seen it actualized. I personally would not be surprised if sometime in the near future we see something like this happen again, maybe not around racial issues, but around more straightforwardly labor issues. Um, Who knows? I know when I was in college, there was kind of a couple of protests at UVA and like an ongoing movement for living wages. And that actually seems like an issue where you could get athletics involved just because a lot of these football players are coming from working class backgrounds and there's an opportunity for building that kind of class solidarity. I, but. I can pretty much guarantee that is not going to happen. That the pe- I love that idea. Don't you dare shoot it it's down. It's not going to happen. People are totally to people are selfish. People are selfish. Oh, come on. They not they everybody. organize around things that that affect them and their friends. That is what they that get worked up of. It's very Janelle hard to get people just to adding them and their families to the equation. I know, but it's I not don't that hard I to... uh, I'll I'll lay a wager with both of you that that you, we don't get any any kind of protest from a sports team that that encompasses people who aren't students. I am happy to take your bet in the name of idealism and aspiration. It is a great idea. I didn't say it wasn't a good idea. I'm just saying it's not going to happen. I know, but you're like peeing all over it before it even gets a chance to, for just a second, raise its head. Anyway, just, sorry, Jamel. Did you, I didn't even let you finish Come your on, sentence. Jamel. You're on my side here. Uh, you know, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> all right. Let's hear from our second sponsor. Stamps.com. How great would it be if the post office were open 24-7? There would be no more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule. And now you can when you use Stamps.com. You can print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then your mail carrier picks it up. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. You can get the exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying, and you can even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST for the special offer of a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The Obama administration announced this week that it would appeal to the Supreme Court the rejection of the president's executive action on immigration, uh, which was shot down in various appeals courts, but mostly the Fifth Circuit. Right, Emily? The, yes. No, that's pretty much the one we're worrying about. The right executive now. action would have, would, if it goes through, shield millions, five million or so people who are here without documentation. I think it's 3.4, maybe. I, thought, but I think it's more than that when lots. you add it up. Okay. Um, okay. Shield them from deportation. And the, the categories of people who'd be shielded are people who are sort of well-behaved and who have a relative who is here legally, right? That's basically the... Right. And who have been here, for, been a here while, for a while, I yes. think, too. And it would expand the uh, DREAM Act protections. Some people would be allowed to seek driver's licenses. 
about half of the state attorney generals, I believe, sued to block this, and they have. Well, what have they done? What what's happened to them, Emily? Why have they won? Well, they won. <laughs> they won in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which means they won at the federal appellate level, and the Obama administration is appealing to the Supreme Court. The legal issue here is whether um, President Obama exceeded his executive authority in trying to issue this order. The argument that he did not exceed his authority is that there is always prosecutorial discretion, in other words, a choice about who you're going to detain and deport. We can't, there aren't the resources, no matter what Donald Trump says, to detain and deport anywhere near like the 11 million people who are here without documents. So the government is constantly making decisions about who to treat in which way. And this order just formalized them for one group of people. No big deal, say lots of legal experts, and not just on the left. But the two judges in the majority in this decision saw it otherwise. And their argument was that President Obama's order essentially created a group of people who have the ability to stay here lawfully, that lawful permission to stay comes with benefits, and in particular, the benefit of being able to apply for a driver's license. And so essentially, the whole um, appellate court decision hinges on the fact that Texas is complaining about having to issue driver's licenses to people who get this deferred status. That was going to cost Texas money. And the two uh, appellate court judges didn't care that that money would be offset by potential benefits to the state. They just felt like, okay, Texas is going to have to spend money on driver's licenses for potentially up to half a million people who are going to get to stay who wouldn't have otherwise. That's good enough to show that the state has standing to sue and good enough to show that the state is likely to win its suit, showing that Obama exceeded his executive authority. And that's pretty much the case so far. Is uh, how certain are we that this is going to be heard and adjudicated by the election? I would say it's kind of 50 50. It's it's late. This is like the end of the period of time in which the Supreme Court accepts new cases because their term, they only hear arguments through April. And so if you're leaving enough time for a briefing schedule, one side, the other side, everybody gets to respond. Everyone gets a certain number of weeks and days to do that. We're just like kind of late days for that. But they could. The Supreme Court could put this on the docket essentially for like the last week of argument in April, and then they could issue a decision by June. Or they could just wait and then push it to the following term, and then it would not be heard and decided until way after the election. They don't have to take the case. They don't, but they kind of, I mean, no, but they do because there's a split among the federal appeals courts, and this is a major issue. So I would be pretty shocked if they just denied cert, but but, but, I mean, denied. But but couldn't they say, like, we're not ready? It's not quite ready. It's not baked enough? They could, yeah. They could send it back for the merits. You're right. We're still in, like, the preliminary phase of who's likely to succeed, and they could send it back essentially for a trial and make the government and the states that were objecting go through really putting on proof. It seems to me like that would be a little silly in this case because I don't really see the factual arguments needing that kind of airing to develop. But yeah, they could do that. It seems to me, Jamel, that the this case has no good outcomes for the nation of the that we live in. <laughs> Outcome one is president sort of wins on the merits, and the supreme because the Supreme Court says the president has vast executive authority to to do what the president wants to do, even though. In this case, the president really does seem to be, you know, stretching quite 
to the limit. No, he isn't. What, it really it, is. He does not. seem to be. St- no. Well, that's your opinion. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people would disagree with you, like me. But but let me just set up my premise. So one is the the Supreme Court. Uh, this Supreme Court, which though conservative is has tended to like the executive authority, finds in favor of the expansive executive. I think that's the less bad of the outcomes. The other is the court sort of says no that this is a, a terrible presidential overreach, and it rules on that grounds, not on some other procedural grounds. And we have a situation where a president, where we have we've handicapped in the executive at a time when Congress is incapable of any action of time of congressional paralysis. And so that the the way of governing that the Democrats have relied on for the past eight years, which is essentially, you know, a brief period of congressional activity followed by unilateral presidential executive action for the past five years, and presumably during the Clinton administration, if there is a next Clinton administration, it would be the same. You will, you're just going to heighten the tension between these branches. You'll have a Congress and a president, and the president won't be able to do anything, and the Congress won't do anything, and then you have a court, which may, you know, end up being the only active actor in, in American government. I find it terrifying, the idea that the Supreme Court could issue a ruling in either direction around this. Am I wrong, Jamel, to be terrified? I mean, I think in the former direction, I'm not sure that a ruling helping, especially if it's not an expansive ruling and just says that this executive action is legal, I don't think, I'm not sure if that is really so worrying because federal law does actually give the president a lot of executive authority to enforce immigration policy. Um, Yes. President Obama may be, you know, walking up towards the limits of that authority, but as far as I understand it, he hasn't really gone beyond them because Congress has explicitly kind of just basically said to the executive branch, you do what you need to do. But Congress today's Republicans are saying that that President Obama is actually violating a law that that there is a law that that they have written and they've set limits on it, and he has just blown through those limits. He is like he is acting as though that law doesn't really exist. For that's not for, true, though, because the, the executive always can't deport everybody, right? It's not like Congress went and ordered him to deport everyone, and he said no. It's that there's this vacuum in which there is a supposedly this thing called illegal immigration and the idea of deporting everyone. And then there's the reality, which is that there is just an enormous, gigantic amount of prosecutorial discretion that goes into who gets detained and deported. And the president just said ahead of time who he thinks is probably more deportable than other people. I mean, there's even a part in this law that says, you know, the Department of Justice reserves its right on a case by case basis to deport any of these people. Emily, just as a last question on this if you if you had to um game it right now this case gets to supreme court would you do you think that the president wins or loses i see this case as being like the second obamacare case so the one that we just had last year it is not very legally mainstream or plausible but it will probably still get three or four conservative justices anyway because they're so eager to rule against the Obama presidency, even if it will be over by then. But really, what it is a measure of is how far to the right the court has moved. Because if you look back at the Supreme Court's previous opinions about immigration and executive authority over immigration, I just don't think there is a terribly serious argument that this is anything, this order is anything but a continuation of the kind of power the court has already allowed the president to have in this particular domain of immigration, which I want to differentiate from other aspects of national security. 
You well, don't I, buy I, it. Just color me, color me, color me skeptical. I mean, I think I'm, you know, I'm a liberal who supports everything the president wants to do on this policy, and I still, and I, you know, I don't know the legal scholarship, and I, I bow to your expertise around that. But it certainly doesn't have the same kind of ludicrous implausibility on its face that that interpretation of Obamacare did. This so one feels. What? This one okay. feels like it's. This is a plausible intellectual argument these people are making. And maybe you're right that it is absolutely counter to to a century of of jurisprudence. But it doesn't feel crazy the way the Obamacare case felt. So what about it is unconvincing to you? The idea that the executive that the president has so much authority over immigration, or the idea that this order is just like a kind of embroidery on the, the sort of executive authority and discretion that already exists out there. Well, right? like which part of it do you not buy? I and I don't know how this fits in. The idea that the president can al- allow, I don't know whether it's allow force uh, the driver's licenses to be available to people that are known to be in the country illegally, which is I can't imagine something that Congress maybe Congress has never said a word about it, but it, I can't imagine that's something that Congress ever permitted. Um, that seemed to me like, wow, that's 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 pretty extraordinary. And then then I recognize that there's prosecutorial discretion. But 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 I again, if you, if, you, if the president said we're not going to prosecute even a single murderer in this country, that's our, my new policy is like, I just don't think it's worth it for us to prosecute murderers. I think there'd be a pretty strong case to say the president is abusing federal law about homicide. I'm not saying that this is the same thing, but it certainly is not completely different I mean, from that. So what if the president... Go ahead, Jamal. No, so I don't... This is going to be one of those cases where I don't think that that analogy is... illuminates anything because it's so... There, there's just not going to be a situation where a president of the United States is going to say... Well, we're no longer gonna have, we're no longer gonna have federal enforcement of murder of like. Also, those are law. state laws, and anyway. like it's just well, it's, no. They're fed, there's federal law. Right. I mean, you kill a federal employee. That's a okay, federal crime. Fine, but almost all murders are prosecuted in the state. But court. it's just that's just sort of it, it's so beyond the realm of possibility that I'm not sure it illuminates anything. Um, I think, and we uh, would never have a sense of federal what's called preemption, right? Because that's state authority. So the courts would not say that the executive even has authority in that area. You could maybe make wait, an what argument do you mean? about. I don't understand. If the, so fe- if, the if 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 the, the Sarnayev brother Jahar Sarnayev was prosecuted as a, under some kind of federal murder or terrorism statute. Yeah, a terrorism statute because Massachusetts didn't have the death penalty. Right, because Massachusetts didn't have the death penalty. Almost all murders are prosecuted by state courts. And so you would never have the Supreme Court or any other court saying, oh, this is a traditional area of federal executive authority that the states have no business in. You would have the opposite set of assumptions. So such a hypothetical would never come out the wrong way in your view. You might have a better hypothetical about like marijuana prosecutions, but I think that would only support the point that we all know to be true, which is that there is a lot of criminal activity in this country that already goes unprosecuted because you just can't enforce the law in any kind of comprehensive way. All right. Let's leave it there. We're going to hear from our third sponsor, which is SAP. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future, and reimagine the way they do business. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash saphana. That's S-A-P-H-A-N-A to learn more. Let's go to cocktail chatter. We have a very special cocktail chatterer today because it is our intern Tark Barrett's last day as our intern. He's going off 
to be a lawyer, public policy, to a bright future. If you were looking for a lawyer, somebody who knows about public policy, who knows about prisoner reentry, education policy, Tark is your man. Tark, what do you want to chatter about? First, I want to say thank you to David, Emily, and John for the opportunity to work with right, my let's favorite cut, Let's podcast. cut that part. I got to say thank you. It's been a great opportunity. Thank you. Wait, no, um, we have you, to say thank you say back. Thank you. You, you have been you. so amazing and organized and kept us on the ball and so prepared and on it. And we are incredibly in your debt. Yes. I appreciate that, Emily. Um, so you all make cocktail chatter seem really simple each week. Um, I, it came down to me a fight between my head and my heart. Um, my head wanted to talk about Aziz Ansari's new Netflix show, Master of None. Um, which I binge watched this weekend. Um, it's clever. It's charming. Um, it's conscious. It's really good. Uh, well, my kids gonna like do it. Chatter, so you're doing I'm two chatters. Okay, I'm going to okay. do two chatters. Wait, um, well, my kids like it. I mean, I don't. I don't know your kids that well. Well, so if I'm not they, sure what, if you're like a Thirty Rock, no, it doesn't even have to be that appropriate. I guess for teenagers, it's probably appropriate. Like maybe not under ten or something, but like twelve. If you and above. like Silicon Valley and Thirty Rock and Parks and Rec, are you likely to fit this into your Venn diagram? Um, it's it's not quite as silly funny as some of those, like Thirty Rock, but it's it's really clever. I haven't seen anything like it. It's more clever humor, but with social commentary in it. Excellent. Yeah, it, this sounds like a good test out. of their level of sophistication. Thank you. It is sophisticated. I'll say that. But what I really want to talk about is, and this is following my heart, Vice had a report called Fixing the System. Uh, it debuted on HBO back at the end of September, and it followed President Obama on his visit to the El Reno Federal Correctional Institution in Oklahoma. And to begin with, it was the first time a sitting president had ever visited a federal prison, which, to steal a phrase from Joe Biden, is a BFD. And it resonated with me personally because I have a younger brother who was formerly incarcerated. And so I could relate to pretty much every element of the, of the report. Uh, in addition, as you mentioned earlier, I've worked in correctional education and reentry policy. For the report, they interviewed President Obama. They interviewed former Attorney General Eric Holder. They interviewed Senator Cory Booker and many others. I mean, it touched on the whole gambit of issues that are facing cr- the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. And one issue in particular was reentry. Now, the report was really powerful because it juxtaposed the experience of the inmates with the impact it had on their families on the outside. And one really powerful statistic it had was that there are over 1.1 million incarcerated fathers. And so just think about the impact that has on families and communities. It also highlighted the fact, getting back to reentry, that even when prisoners are contrite and they come out and they're doing everything that they need to do, it's almost like the system is set up to send them back. And so another statistic was that we spend like $80 billion on corrections. That's a lot of money. And over half of inmates end up returning. Any other program you could imagine where you fail half the time and you're spending that kind of money would be viewed quite differently. At one point during his discussion with the inmates, he asked them, you know, what are some ideas you have for how we can make reentry better and more effective? And some of the ideas they came up included correctional education, workforce training, employment opportunities, resources for starting small businesses, and parent and family support. And in fact, just last week, the White House released a fact sheet on several new actions that are designed to promote rehabilitation and reintegration of the formerly incarcerated. And among those were many of, uh, or many of the, uh, the actions that they proposed were responsive, in fact, to the inmates' ideas. And together, I think the Vice Report and the White House fact sheet provide a little bit of hope moving forward. I think, you know, given the climate, we talked about what's going on in, in Missouri, the powerful Black Lives Matter movement, 
Um, I think we lose sight often of the progress that is being made, however incremental it might be. And I think that regardless of what you think about President Obama, regardless of what you think about the GOP-led Congress, this is really a legacy opportunity for both of them. And I think it's important, like I said, we keep sight of the fact that progress is being made, sometimes not fast enough. doesn't mean that there aren't other issues of import that we need to focus on, but we do need to kind of pay attention to that because this reentry movement and this reentry reform is really going to affect the lives of literally millions of people. I think 600,000 people return from incarceration every year. So I highly recommend the Vice Special Report, Fixing the System, um, also taking a look at some of the progress that is being made in that area, and also the Netflix Master of None, which is really good. And Aziz Ansari did a really good job with that. All right, Tarek, thank you. That was a great chatter and great good luck to you. Thank you. Whatever comes next for you. Uh, Emily, what is your chatter? My chatter actually follows really well onto that excellent chatter. A few weeks or months ago, we talked about the case of a guy in West Virginia named Joseph Buffy, who had given a confession to a brutal rape that he had immediately tried to retract, but the police didn't believe him. And he was prosecuted and pled guilty while he was waiting for the results of the DNA testing in the rape case to come back. He learned after he was convicted that the DNA essentially exonerated him and that the prosecutors had the DNA test results before his final guilty plea. So I just wanted to report that the Supreme Court of West Virginia has uh, allowed him to withdraw this guilty plea that he made. And so Joseph Buffy is not quite a free man because the state of West Virginia has 30 days to decide whether or not to retry him. Given that he's already spent 14 years in prison for this rape that I would say it's pretty clear he didn't commit, um, I hope he will be out of prison soon. And um, it seems like uh, the right call by the West Virginia Supreme Court. Great. Jamel, you got a chatter? I do. Uh, so previously on this podcast, I've mentioned shooting uh, photos with film using film cameras. I still am doing that. And afterwards on Twitter, I sort of chatted with people about the kind of cameras I was using and sort of recommendations. Um, and the the fact is that, you know, oftentimes uh, film cameras, especially like really nice ones, can still be, you know, one, 100 200 $300, which is not something necessarily people want to pay for what's basically a lark um, shooting film. Uh, and so I wanted to recommend the camera that I picked up that was very affordable and that has uh, really served me well in the past two months I've been using it. It is uh, Nikon's very first compact camera, which just means usually a, a single, a, a fixed focal length, just like one one lens camera that is fully automatic. There is no, you don't got to worry about adjusting the lens opening um, or the shutter speed or anything. You're just going to point and shoot. Uh, and it's called the L35AF. You can find it on eBay for like 30 bucks, 40 bucks tops. Um, and it's a really wonderful uh, little camera that takes really sharp pictures. And in using it the past two months, um, people were really delighted by the fact that you have this like old, <laughs> old plastic camera. Whenever I've used it with with folks, or even just like taking a picture of a, of a stranger or something, the the as soon as I hit the uh, shutter, uh, someone's like, "Is that film?" Because um, you can hear the film winding each time. So 
this is a great camera uh, if you're interested in shooting film or at least just you know trying something a little different than um, your iPhone or your you know big old SLR. Uh, I, I recommend finding one of these things. They're really fun. Cool. My chatter. Uh, I guess I'm gonna do this chatter. It's really I should have saved it for the conundrum show, but I, since I can't think of anything else, I'll just do it instead. So I was at Penn Station yesterday, walking um, into Penn Station in New York uh, to catch a train back to Washington. And as I was walking across Seventh uh, Avenue. A little boy, maybe five years old, was sort of racing into the street, clearly racing away from his mother, who was screaming at him in a very nasty way. But this kid is like racing into, he wasn't racing yet into traffic because the, the pedestrian sign was on, but he was racing across a very busy street, clearly out of control of his mother. And so I grabbed him and because it just seemed like he this is, shouldn't be, shouldn't be, and brought him back to his mother who just continued to just absolutely be screaming and cursing at him. And then took she took his her son from me, sort of yanked him, and then yanked him down the stairs uh, of Penn Station as I was walking down the stairs of Penn Station, too. And I perhaps they were trying to go catch a train. I don't know what it was, you know, she... But the mother was so agitated and so vicious uh, and so aggressive towards her son. And I just didn't... I had this moment where it was like, should I... God, what on earth am I supposed to do at this moment with this child and this mother who is, you know, she is under some kind of terrible stress. I, you know, maybe it's just the moment of, of of, commuting. I don't know what it is, but I I throw it out to you, well, you guys can answer, or um, to you, dear listeners, about what I should have done, because I, I really felt like there's something gone awry, and I didn't, and I had no part except returning this child. Oof, that sounds so upsetting. Could you have asked her if she needed help, or was there just no room for You know, that? I, yeah, I probably should have done that. Uh, I don't I don't think she was receptive at that moment. I think she probably would have told me to fuck off. That was basically the tenor of her language about everything. But I didn't ask, so maybe that would have been a start. And I guess even if she had told you to fuck off, maybe the fact that you asked at some point a few minutes later might have made her realize that she seemed out of control. Yeah. Our intern for the final time is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GapFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GapFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GapFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please send us conundrums. Uh, hashtag HeyGabFest if you're on Twitter or just send them to Facebook or email and come to the Superfest in New York City on Monday night. Please come. It's going to be really good and you can get tickets at Slate.com slash SuperfestNYC. For Emily, Bazelon, Jamel Bowie, and Tark Barrett, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Next week.